Chapter Twenty of Zanoni by Edward Bulwer Lytton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. Delusion is the life we live, and knowledge death. Oh, wherefore then to sight the coming evils give and lift the veil of fate to man? Two souls dwell, alas, in my breast. Why standest thou so and lookest out astonished? Faust. It will be remembered that we left Master Powell by the bedside of Glyndon, and as, waking from that profound slumber, the recollections of the past night came horribly back to his mind, the Englishman uttered a cry, and covered his face with his hands. "'Good morrow, Excellency,' said Paolo gaily. "'Corpo di Bacco, you have slept soundly.' The sound of this man's voice, so lusty, ringing, and healthful, served to scatter before it the phantasma that had yet haunted Glyndon's memory. He rose erect in his bed. "'And where did you find me? Why are you here?' "'Where did I find you?' repeated Paolo in surprise. "'In your bed, to be sure. Why am I here? Because the padrone bade me await your awakening and attend your commands.' "'The padrone, Mejnour, is he arrived?' "'Arrived and departed, signor. He left this letter for you.' "'Give it to me, and wait without till I am dressed.' at your service i have bespoke an excellent breakfast you must be hungry i am a very tolerable cook a monk's son ought to be you will be startled at my genius in the dressing of fish my singing i trust will not disturb you i always sing while i prepare a salad it harmonizes the ingredients and slinging his carbine over his shoulder paolo sauntered from the room and closed the door glyndon was already deep in the contents of the following letter when I first received thee as my pupil, I promised Zanoni, if convinced by thy first trials, that thou couldst but swell, not the number of our order, but the list of the victims who have aspired to it in vain, I would not rear thee to thine own wretchedness and doom. I would dismiss thee back to the world. I fulfill my promise. Thine ordeal has been the easiest that neophyte ever knew. I ask for nothing but abstinence from the sensual, and a brief experiment of thy patience and thy faith. Go back to thine own world, thou hast no nature to aspire to ours. It was I who prepared Paolo to receive thee at the revel. It was I who instigated the old beggar to ask thee for alms. It was I who left open the book that thou could not read without violating my command. Well, thou hast seen what awaits thee at the threshold of knowledge. Thou hast confronted the first foe that menaces him, whom the senses yet grasp and enthrall. Dost thou wonder that I close upon thee the gates for ever? Dost thou not comprehend at last that it needs a soul tempered and purified and raised, not by external spells, but by its own sublimity and valor, to pass the threshold and disdain the foe? Wretch, all my silence avails nothing for the rash, for the sensual, for him who desires our secrets but to pollute them with gross enjoyments and selfish vice. How have the impostors and sorcerers of the earlier times perished by their very attempt to penetrate the mysteries that should purify and not deprave? They have boasted of the philosopher's stone, and died in rags, of the immortal elixir, and sunk to their grave, gray before their time. Legends tell you that the fiend rent them into fragments, yes, the fiend of their own unholy desires and criminal designs, what they coveted, thou covetst. And if thou hadst the wings of a seraph, thou couldst soar not from the slough of thy mortality, thy desire for knowledge, but petulant presumption, thy thirst for happiness, 
but the diseased longing for the unclean and muddied waters of corporeal pleasure thy very love which usually elevates even the mean a passion that calculates treason amidst the glow of lust thou one of us thou a brother of the august order thou an aspirant to the stars that shine in the shemaya of the Chaldean lore the eagle can rise but the eaglet to the sun i abandon thee to thy twilight but alas for thee disobedient and profane thou hast inhaled the elixir thou hast attracted to thy presence a ghastly and remorseless foe thou thyself must exercise the phantom thou hast raised thou must return to the world but not without punishment and strong effort canst thou regain the calm and joy of the life thou hast left behind this for the comfort i will tell thee he who has drawn into his frame even so little of the volatile and vital energy of the aerial juices as thyself has awakened faculties that cannot sleep faculties that may yet with patient humility and sound faith and the courage that is not of the body like thine but of the resolute and virtuous mind attain if not to the knowledge that reigns above to the high achievement in the career of men thou wilt find the restless influence in all that thou wouldst undertake thy heart amidst vulgar joys will aspire to something holier thy ambition amidst coarse excitement to something beyond thy reach but deem not that this of itself will suffice for glory equally may the craving lead thee to shame and guilt but it is an imperfect and new-born energy which will not suffer thee to repose as thou directest it must thou believe it to be the emanation of thine evil genius or thy good but woe to thee insect meshed in the web in which thou hast entangled limbs and wings thou hast not only inhaled the elixir thou hast conjured the spectre of all the tribes of space no foe is so malignant to man and thou hast lifted the veil from thy gaze i cannot restore thee to the happy dimness of thy vision know at least that all of us the highest and the wisest who have in sober truth passed beyond the threshold have had as our first fearful task to master and subdue its grisly and appalling guardian know that thou canst deliver thyself from those livid eyes know that while they haunt they cannot harm if thou resistest the thoughts to which they tempt and the horror they engender dread them most when thou beholdst them not and thus son of the worm we part all that i can tell thee to encourage yet to warm and guide i have told thee in these lines not from me from thyself has come the gloomy trial from which i yet trust thou wilt emerge into peace type of the knowledge that i serve i withhold no lesson from the pure aspirant i am a dark enigma to the general seeker a man's only indestructible possession is his memory so it is not in mine art to crumble into matter the immaterial thoughts that have sprung up within thy breast the tyro might shatter his castle to the dust and topple down the mountain to the plain the master has no power to say exist no more to one thought that his knowledge has inspired thou mayst change the thoughts into new forms thou mayst rarefy and sublimate into finer spirit but thou canst not annihilate that which has no home but in the memory no substance but the idea every thought is a soul vainly therefore i would or thou undo the past or restore to thee the gay blindness of thy youth thou must endure the influence of the elixir thou hast inhaled thou must wrestle with the spectre thou hast invoked the letter fell from glyndon's hand a sort of stupor succeeded into the various emotions which had chased each other in the perusal 
a stupor resembling that which follows the sudden destruction of any ardent and long-nursed hope in the human heart whether it be of love of avarice of ambition the loftier world for which he had so thirsted sacrificed and toiled was closed upon him for ever and by his own faults of rashness and presumption but glyndon was not of that nature which submits long to condemn itself his indignation began to kindle against Mignor, who owned he had tempted and who now abandoned him abandoned him to the presence of a spectre the mystic's reproaches stung rather than humbled him what crime had he committed to deserve language so harsh and disdainful was it so deep a debasement to feel pleasure in the smile and the eyes of felidi had not zanoni himself confessed love for viola had he not fled with her as his companion glyndon never paused to consider if there are no distinctions between one kind of love and another where too was the great offence of yielding to a temptation which only existed for the brave had not the mystic volume which mejnour had purposely left open bid him but beware of fear was not then every wilful provocative held out to the strongest influences of the human mind in the prohibition to enter the chamber in the possession of the key which excited his curiosity in the volume which seemed to dictate the mode by which the curiosity was to be gratified as rapidly as these thoughts passed over him he began to consider the whole conduct of mejnour either as a perfidious design to entrap him to his own misery or as the trick of an impostor who knew that he could not realize the great professions he had made on glancing again over the more mysterious threats and warnings in mejnour's letter they seemed to assume the language of a mere parable and allegory the jargon of the platonists and pythagoreans by little and little he began to consider that the very spectre he had seen even that one phantom so horrid in its aspect were but the delusions which mejnour's science had enabled him to raise a healthful sunlight filling up every cranny in his chamber seemed to laugh away the terrors of the past night his pride and his resentment nerved his habitual courage and when having hastily dressed himself he rejoined paolo it was with a flushed cheek and a haughty step so paolo said he the padrone as you call him told you to expect and welcome me at your village feast he did so by a message from a wretched old cripple this surprised me at the time for i thought he was far distant but these great philosophers make a joke of two or three hundred leagues why did you not tell me you had heard from mejnour because the old cripple forbade me did you not see the man afterwards during the dance no excellency allow me to serve you said paolo piling glyndon's plate and then filling his glass i wish signor now the padrone is gone not added paolo as he cast rather a frightened and suspicious glance round the room that i mean to say anything disrespectful of him i wish i say now that he is gone that you would take pity on yourself and ask your own heart what your youth was meant for not to bury yourself alive in these old ruins and endanger body and soul by studies which i am sure no saint could approve of are the saints so partial then to your own occupations master paolo why answered the bandit a little confused a gentleman with plenty of pistoles in his purse need not of necessity make it his profession to take away the pistoles of other people it is a different thing for us poor rogues after all too i always devote a tithe of my gains to the virgin and i share the rest charitably with the poor but eat drink enjoy yourself 
be absolved by your confessor for any little picadillos and don't run too long scores at a time that's my advice your health excellency pshaw signor fasting except on the days prescribed but to a good catholic only engenders phantoms phantoms yes the devil always tempts the empty stomach to covet to hate to thieve to rob and to murder these are the natural desires of a man who is famishing with a full belly signor we are at peace with all the world that's right you like the porridge cospetto when i myself have passed two or three days in the mountains with nothing from sunset to sunrise but a black crust and an onion i grow as fierce as a wolf that's not the worst too in these times i see little imps dancing before me oh yes fasting is as full of spectres as a field of battle glyndon thought there was some sound philosophy in the reasoning of his companion and certainly the more he ate and drank the more the recollection of the past night and of Majnor's desertion faded from his mind the casement was open the breeze blew the sun shone all nature was merry and merry as nature herself grew maestro paolo he talked of adventures of travel of women with a hearty gusto that had its infection but glyndon listened yet more complacently when paolo turned with an arch smile to praises of the eye the teeth the ankles and the shape of the handsome filete this man indeed seemed to be the very personation of animal sensual life he would have been to faust a more dangerous tempter than mephistopheles there was no sneer on his lip at the pleasures which animated his voice to one awakening to a sense of the vanities and knowledge this reckless ignorant joyousness of temper was a worse corrupter than all the icy mockeries of a learned fiend but when paolo took his leave with a promise to return the next day the mind of the englishman again settled back to a graver and more thoughtful mood the elixir seemed in truth to have left the refining effects mejnour had ascribed to it as glyndon paced to and fro the solitary corridor or pausing gazed upon the extended and glorious scenery that stretched below high thoughts of enterprise and ambition bright visions of glory passed in rapid succession through his soul mejnour denies me his science well said the painter proudly he has not robbed me of my art what clarence glyndon dost thou return to that from which thy career commenced was zanoni right after all he found himself in the chamber of the mystic not a vessel not an herb the solemn volume is vanished the elixir had sparkled for him no more but still in the room itself seems to linger the atmosphere of a charm faster and fiercer it burns within thee the desire to achieve to create thou longest for a life beyond the sensual but the life that is permitted to all genius that which breathes through the immortal work and endures the imperishable name what are the implements for thine art tush when did the true workman ever fail to find his tools thou art again in thine own chamber the white wall thy canvas a fragment of charcoal for thy pencil they suffice at least to give outline to the conception that may otherwise vanish with the morrow the idea that thus excited the imagination of the artist was unquestionably noble and august it was derived from that egyptian ceremonial which diodorus had recorded the judgment of the dead by the living when the corpse duly embalmed is placed by the margin of the archusian lake 
and before it may be consigned to the bark which is to bear it across the waters to its final resting-place it is permitted to the appointed judges to hear all accusations of the past life of the deceased and if proved to deprive the corpse of the rights of the sepulchre unconsciously to himself it was Mejnour's description of his custom which he had illustrated by several anecdotes not to be found in books that now suggested the design to the artist and gave it reality and force he supposed a powerful and guilty king whom in life scarce a whisper had dared to arraign but against whom now the breath was gone came the slave from his fetters the mutilated victim from his dungeon livid and squalid as if dead themselves invoking with parched lips the justice that outlives the grave strange fervour this o artist breaking suddenly forth from the mists and darkness which the occult science had spread so long over thy fancies strange that the reaction of the night's terror and the day's disappointment should be back to thine holy art oh how freely goes the bold hand over the large outline how despite those rude materials speaks forth no more the pupil but the master fresh yet from the glorious elixir how thou givest to thy creatures the finer life denied to thyself some power not thy own writes the grand symbols on the wall behind rises the mighty sepulchre on the building of which repose to the dead the lives of thousands had been consumed there sit in a semicircle the solemn judges black and sluggish flows the lake there lies the mummied and royal dead dost thou quail at the frown on this lifelike brow ha bravely done o artist up rise the haggard forms pale speak the ghastly faces shall not humanity after death avenge itself on power thy conception clarence glyndon is a sublime truth thy design promises renown to genius better this magic than the charms of the volume and the vessel hour after hour has gone thou hast lighted the lamp night sees thee yet at thy labour merciful heaven what chills the atmosphere why does the lamp grow wan why does thy hair bristle there 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 at the casement it gazes on thee the dark dismantled loathsome thing there with their devilish mockery and hateful craft glare on thee those horrid eyes he stood and gazed it was no delusion it spoke not moved not till unable to bear longer than that steady burning look he covered his face with his hands with a start with a thrill he removed them he felt the nearer presence of the nameless there it cowered on the floor beside his design and lo the figure seemed to start from the wall those pale accusing figures the shapes he himself had raised frowned at him and gibbered with a violent effort that convulsed his whole being he bathed his body in the sweat of agony the young man mastered his horror he strode towards the phantom he endured its eyes he accosted it with a steady voice he demanded its purpose and defied its power and then as a wind from a charnel was heard its voice what it said what it revealed it is forbidden the lips to repeat the hand to record nothing save the subtle life that yet animated the frame to which the inhalations of the elixir had given vigour and energy beyond the strength of the strongest could have survived that awful hour better to wake in the catacombs and see the buried rise from their cerements and hear the ghouls in their horrid orgies amongst the festering ghastliness of corruption than to front those features when the veil was lifted and listen to that whispered voice the next day glyndon fled from the ruined castle 
with what hopes of a starry light had he crossed the threshold with what memories to shudder evermore at the darkness did he look back at the frown of its time-worn towers faust whither go now mephist whither it pleases thee we see the small world then the great draw your chair to the fireside brush clean the hearth and trim the lights o home of sleekness order substance comfort o excellent thing art thou matter of fact it is some time after the date of the last chapter here we are not in moonlit islands or mouldering castles but in a room twenty-six feet by twenty-two well carpeted well cushioned solid armchairs and eight such bad pictures in such fine frames upon the walls thomas mervale esq merchant of london you are an enviable dog it was the easiest thing in the world for mervale on returning from his continental episode of life to settle down to his desk his heart had always been there the death of his father gave him as a birthright a high position in a respectable though second-rate firm to make this establishment first-rate was an honourable ambition it was his he had lately married not entirely for money no he was worldly rather than mercenary he had no romantic ideas of love but he was too sensible a man not to know that a wife should be a companion not merely a speculation he did not care for beauty and genius but he liked health and good temper and a certain proportion of useful understanding he chose a wife from his reason not his heart and a very good choice he made mrs mervale was an excellent young woman bustling managing economical but affectionate and good she had a will of her own but was no shrew she had a great notion of the rights of a wife and a strong perception of the qualities that ensure comfort she would never have forgiven her husband had she found him guilty of the most passing fancy for another but in return she had the most admirable sense of propriety herself she held in abhorrence all levity all flirtation all coquetry small vices which often ruin domestic happiness but which a giddy nature incurs without consideration but she did not think it right to love a husband overmuch she left a surplus of affection for all her relations all her friends some of her acquaintances and the possibility of a second marriage should any accident happen to mr m she kept a good table for it suited their station and her temper was considered even though firm but she could say a sharp thing or two if mr mervale was not punctual to a moment she was very particular that he should change his shoes on coming home the carpets were new and expensive she was not sulky nor passionate heaven bless her for that but when displeased she showed it administered a dignified rebuke alluded to her own virtues to her uncle who was an admiral and to the thirty thousand pounds which she had brought to the object of her choice but as mr mervale was a good-humoured man owned his faults and subscribed to her excellence the displeasure was soon over every household has its little disagreements none fewer than that of mr and mrs mervale mrs mervale without being improperly fond of dress paid due attention to it she was never seen out of her chamber with papers in her hair nor in that worst of delusions a morning wrapper at half-past eight every morning mrs mervale was dressed for the day and that is till she redressed for dinner her stays well laced her cap prim her gowns winter and summer of thick handsome silk ladies at that time wore very short waists so did mrs mervale her morning ornaments were a thick gold chain 
to which was suspended a gold watch none of those fragile dwarfs of mechanism that look so pretty and go so ill but a handsome repeater which chronicled father time to a moment a mosaic brooch also a miniature of her uncle the admiral set in a bracelet for the evening she had two handsome sets necklace earrings and bracelets complete one of amethysts the other topazes with these her costume for the most part was gold-coloured satin and a turban in which her last picture had been taken mrs mervali had an aquiline nose good teeth fair hair and light eyelashes rather a high complexion what is generally called a fine bust full cheeks large useful feet made for walking large hands with filbert nails on which not a speck of dust had even in childhood ever been known to light she looked a little older than she really was but that might arise from a certain air of dignity and the foresaid aquiline nose she generally wore short mittens she never read any poetry but goldsmiths and cowpers she was not amused by novels though she had no prejudice against them she liked a play and a pantomime with a slight supper afterwards she did not like concerts nor operas at the beginning of the winter she selected some book to read and some piece of work to commence the two lasted her till the spring when though she continued to work she left off reading her favorite study was history which she read through the medium of dr goldsmith her favorite author in the bellus lettres was of course dr johnson a worthier woman or one more respected was not to be found except in an epitaph it was an autumn night mr and mrs mervali lately returned from an excursion to weymouth are in the drawing-room the dame sat on this side the man sat on that yes i assure you my dear that glyndon with all his eccentricities was a very engaging amiable fellow you would certainly have liked him all the women did my dear thomas will you forgive the remark but that expression of yours all the women i beg your pardon you are right i meant to say that he was a general favorite with your charming sex i understand rather a frivolous character frivolous no not exactly a little unsteady very odd but certainly not frivolous presumptuous and headstrong in character but modest and shy in his manners rather too much so just what you like however to return i am seriously uneasy at the accounts i have heard of him to-day he has been living it seems a very strange and irregular life travelling from place to place and must have spent a great deal of money apropos of money said mrs mervali i fear we must change our butcher he is certainly in league with the cook that is a pity his beef is remarkably fine these london servants are as bad as the caraboni but as i was saying poor glyndon here a knock was heard at the door bless me said mrs mervali it's past ten who can that possibly be perhaps your uncle the admiral said the husband with a slight peevishness in his accent he generally favours us about this hour i hope my love that none of my relations are unwelcome visitors at your house the admiral is a most entertaining man and his fortune is entirely at his own disposal no one i respect more said mr mervali with emphasis the servant threw open the door and announced mr glyndon mr glyndon what an extraordinary exclaimed mrs mervali but before she could conclude the sentence glyndon was in the room the two friends greeted each other with all the warmth of early recollection and long absence 
an appropriate and proud presentation to mrs mervale ensued and mrs mervale with a dignified smile and a furtive glance at his boots made her husband's friend welcome to england glyndon was greatly altered since mervale had seen him last though less than two years had elapsed since then his fair complexion was more bronzed and manly deep lines of care or thought or dissipation had replaced the smooth contour of happy youth to a manner once gentle and polished had succeeded a certain recklessness of mind tone and bearing which bespoke of the habits of a society that cared little for the calm decorums of conventional ease still a kind of wild nobleness not before apparent in him characterized his aspect and gave something of dignity to the freedom of his language and gestures so then you are settled mervale i need not ask you if you are happy worth sense wealth character and so a fair a companion deserve happiness and command it would you like some tea mr glyndon asked mrs mervale kindly thank you no i propose a more convivial stimulus to my old friend wine mervale wine eh or a bowl of old english punch your wife will excuse us we will make a night of it mrs mervale drew back her chair and tried not to look aghast linden did not give his friend time to reply so at last i am in england he said looking round the room with a slight sneer on his lips surely this sober air must have its influence surely here i shall be like the rest have you been ill glyndon ill yes humph you have a fine house does it contain a spare room for a solitary wanderer mr mervale glanced at his wife and his wife looked steadily on the carpet modest and shy in his manners rather too much so mrs mervale was in the seventh heaven of indignation and amaze my dear said mr mervale at last meekly and interrogatingly my dear returned mrs mervale innocently and sourly we can make up a room for my old friend sarah the old friend had sunk back in his chair and gazing intently on the fire with his feet at ease upon the fender seemed to have forgotten the question mrs mervale bit her lips looked thoughtful and at last coldly replied certainly mr mervale your friends do right to make themselves at home with that she lighted a candle and moved majestically from the room when she returned the two friends had vanished into mr mervale's study twelve o'clock struck one o'clock two thrice had mrs mervale sent into the room to know first if anything they wanted secondly if mr glyndon slept on a mattress or a feather bed thirdly to inquire if mr glyndon's trunk which he had brought with him should be unpacked and to the answer to all these questions was added in a loud voice from the visitor a voice that pierced from the kitchen to the attic another bowl stronger if you please and be quick with it at last mr mervale appeared in the conjugal chamber not pentient nor apologetic no not a bit of it his eyes twinkled his cheek flushed his feet reeled he sang mr thomas mervale positively sang mr mervale is it possible sir old king cole was a merry old soul mr mervale sir leave me alone sir and a merry old soul was he what an example to the servants and he called for his pipe and he called for his bowl if you don't behave yourself sir i shall call call for his fiddlers three end of chapter twenty recording by kirk ziegler ogden utah voiceover-solutions.com